Welcome to Team Luke from Minds Podcast. On this show, our mission is to help families just like yours. We'll bring you inspiring stories from brain injury survivors, advice from health professionals, and much more to help make the recovery journey a little easier. If you or anyone you know has a, suffered from a brain injury, this show is for you. Hey everyone, welcome to the 10th episode of the Team Luke Hope for Minds podcast. And we're here today with Matthew and Bianca. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on. Um, my first question is, can you just tell us a little bit about the story um, from both of y'all's perspectives? Uh, sure. I guess I'll go first because um, there's, there's a large part of the story that Matthew is not a part of. Well, he's a part of it, but he doesn't remember it because he was in a coma. But... Um, it was 6 a.m. in the morning when a police officer woke me up and was at my door and telling me that uh, my son had been in a, in a really serious car accident. Um, and so he drove me to the hospital, and that's when I found out that it was as serious as I thought it was going to be. Um, so the short version is I was told that there was a massive head trauma, brain injury, uh, broken bones from head to toe, some organs were messed up, uh, pretty much just head to toe damage to his body. So that's kind of what started this, our whole ordeal. And maybe Matthew remembers a little bit about up until the accident, but not the accident, right? Yeah. Yeah. You tell us a little bit before the accident or what you can remember and then also mm-hmm. when your memory picks back up. Yeah. So it was just... A normal day of high school for me in my junior year the second semester just started and I remember I was really tired so I came from from school at 4:20 and immediately fell asleep so I I woke up at like 11:30 and I tried going back to bed and I did and then I woke up at two o'clock and I decided to go to Whataburger which is a Excellent choice. Yeah, great <laughs> choice. Yeah, and so I was driving to there, and I didn't really notice, but it rained a lot when I was sleeping, and I just didn't really notice. So when I was driving, I hydroplaned into a tree because this back road I was taking to get to Whataburger is very windy, and I was going a tad fast. <laughs> but yeah, tad fast. How 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 much is a tad? I don't know. I mean, I think the speed limit on that road is like 45 and I was going like 55. Okay. Yeah. So a tad. So, and then what happened after? Um, I hydroplaned into a tree driver's side door. Um, pretty much crushed the whole entire roof of the car within inches from my head. And I was lying on the center console and yeah. And when I hit the tree, the door came all the way in and started squishing my pelvis between the center console, and that's what caused the mass amount of pelvic uh, hemorrhage. So that's that's uh, pretty yeah. serious. Can you uh, tell us a little more about that? Yeah. So um, from the print I happened with the car accident is that all the windows shattered, so it just cut up my face and I was sitting straight up and I came down with so much force from my right elbow that I actually broke my center console. I just broke the plastic and came down. 
So the whole backside of my right arm got cut up with plastic shards. And then my pelvis got crushed. And then also my sternum slammed into the steering wheel. So it broke my sternum in two different places. And then the seatbelt, which did stop me from being ejected from the car, it ended up breaking my ribs in six places. And then I also got a couple of compression fractures to my spine. And also my seatbelt broke my clavicle. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, the biggest part of it was the TBI just because the way the injury was. I had my brain shear injury, diffuse axonal brain injury. But then I also had um, a lot of bruising on the right uh, outside portion of my head that I got from hitting the passenger seat. And so, because of that uh, bruising to the right side of my brain, it affected the left side of my body. So, after the accident, I was completely, I mean, I was pretty much paralyzed on the left side of my body, which was a really weird feeling. I couldn't feel anything. I could barely move my left side of my body. It wasn't until, like, a month and a half after the accident that I, like, started to feel again on my left side. And I still have some remnants of it. Like, on my left leg, I can't feel as much pain. It's, I mean, yeah, it's just how it is. Um, is that um, from where you your brain injury was? Because I do know, because like me, like, I have less feeling in my whole right side. Even mm-hmm. now, like, five years later, like, I can't act, like, if I close my hand, like, I can't, like, or close my eyes, like, I can't accurately tell if I'm holding an object, like... I can't actually tell what it is from my right hand versus my left hand. Um, so it's just mainly because of when I hit my head. That's the reason why the left side of my body was briefly paralyzed. Um, with the diffuse axonal brain injury, most of the infected, uh, infected parts were the interior portion of my brain, so it's around the brainstem. That was the biggest part. So like, I had a whole bunch of bruising and microhemorrhaging around by like hypothalamus, hippocampus, and just everything else in the brainstem that controls all the important functions. And so that caused other stuff like sleep issues. So I remember um, in the hospital, they were, they kept trying different sleep medications just because with my bruised hypothalamus, because that controls your sleep, I just couldn't sleep at all in the hospital. And that's actually why they thought I was going to die was because my hypothalamus was so badly bruised that they weren't even sure if I was going to wake up in the first place. So that was the main concern. Yeah, what yeah. the what the way the neurosurgeon phrased it was he said that one of the parts of the brain that was damaged is the part of the brain that tells you to wake up. So if that remained damaged enough, then he wouldn't wake up because his brain wouldn't tell him to. So that was that was the risk we were facing with that particular brain injury. There were several of them, but that was why they said they didn't think he'd wake up. So, but obviously he did because he's here now. But you know, there's a if I can share a couple of stories about the scene um, because you know it was a middle of night accident with a single car. So on a on a rural road. So the first hurdle that had that had to be overcome was somebody had to find him. And um, we we basically two guardian angels were sent to us that night because there were there was a couple 
that was returning home from a party and they had decided to go to Whataburger at the last minute. So they were going to turn down the road that he was on, but then decided, well, I'm going to, well, let's go to Whataburger. So they didn't. So they went to Whataburger and then came back and then turned down the road and found Matthew. Had they decided not to go to Whataburger, they would have headed down that road before the crash even happened. So the fact that they made that choice basically saved Matthew's life because now they were there to see it. And they saw um, a car down in the ditch with lights blinking. And that's what made them stop. And uh, But other than that, I mean, at that time of day on that particular road, I'm not sure anybody would have um, found him and he probably would have bled to death. Um, but they did and they approached the car and they said that it was crushed so badly that they couldn't see a human at first. And, uh, but then finally they saw an arm and they just started yelling over the sound of the horn, which was, had malfunctioned and, uh, trying to break window, the, the, well, the one remaining window that hadn't broken. Um, and then, uh, they called, of course, called 911. Um, and then that was, you know, so that, that's truly a blessing that they found him. Um, but then one of the firefighters that responded, um, is a, high enough rank now that he doesn't actually do the rescues anymore but he was working that night and he said there was just something about seeing this young person in a car he just got to work and started trying to cut matthew out of the car which took 45 minutes so if you know anything about the magic trauma hour we were well past the trauma hour at this point so again his risk of survival was going down constantly um, but it took, that's how badly the car was crushed. It took them 45 minutes to get him out. Um, but, uh, you know, and then they had to get him to the hospital. So he wound up getting to the hospital over two hours past the crash, which is not good for a trauma. Um, but anyway, that firefighter is now our best friend today. So, <laughs> um, but if I could just tell you, uh, we went up meeting the firefighter, uh, the day after the crash, because he happened to be at the hospital for something else. And he heard there was a 17-year-old on the floor. And he came over and found our room and asked the nurse, um, you know, if he if he could talk to me. And she pointed, she tapped me on the shoulder and said, do you want to talk to this guy? He's the firefighter that pulled your son out of the car. And of course, I wanted to talk to him. And I turned around and he was crying. And I, he said, sorry, he said, that was the worst I'd ever seen of somebody pinned in a car in my entire career. And I never thought I'd see him alive. And I can't believe I'm seeing him alive. Even though he's in a coma, he's alive. So it was just, you know, one of those kind of weird things. But he's become one of our closest friends today. So, so what happened? Uh, give us a little story about the, what happened in the recovery process. So... In the recovery process, I spent my first three and a half weeks after the car accident in the ICU in Round Rock. And I don't remember much of the ICU just because they had me on the max dose of fentanyl and it causes severe memory loss. So I don't remember anything from the ICU, which I guess is kind of a blessing that I don't have trauma from like probably one of the toughest parts of my recovery and accepting it. I just kind of forgot all that. So that was really beneficial, but then I was transferred to Dell Children's for inpatient rehab, and 
that I remember perfectly. It was two and a half weeks, and that's where the bulk of my recovery came in. I was learning how to speak again, learning how to walk, because I was pre-introduced to, like, a baby. I can only, like, crawl. (laughs) And so part of my big motivation for going through rehab so fast was this program I was involved in high school called PALS, where you mentor kids that are at risk in middle school and elementary school. And that was one of my biggest motivations for getting out of the hospital. So, I mean, I went to every single time slot of therapy that was available. I would go to the extra therapy on the weekends that wasn't required. Even though it seemed like really small stuff, it was just like, you know, baking a cake or whatever. It was just like, I wanted to do everything possible to get better and get out of the hospital as fast as I could because I just wanted to get back to my high school and back to mentoring kids and seeing my friends. So, yeah. And this is where I get to brag because we were told to expect his inpatient rehab stay to be twice as long as it was. But because Matthew worked so hard, we were only there two and a half weeks. So that was really great. So how long were you in a coma for? So I was in a coma for a week and a half. I got into my accident on February 4th at pretty much 3 o'clock in the morning. And then I awoke from my coma at 12 o'clock at night on Valentine's Day on the 14th. And I actually woke up from my coma by... So I woke up from my coma at 12, and at first, none of the nurses knew. The way they found out, though, was that I pulled out my intubation tube, which, (laughs) um, that was interesting, because I pulled out my intubation tube, and the first miracle was that, so intubation tube is secured in your lungs by a 10cc balloon or 10 milliliter, and if you pull the intubation tube out and the balloon doesn't pop, you will destroy your vocal cords and have irreparable damage to your voice box for the rest of your life. But miraculously, it popped before I pulled it out. And then the second part is just, you know, living because I pulled out my intubation tube and Prince took away my only, like, guaranteed source of oxygen. So... The doctors and nurses just had the hope that I could breathe on my own because they were fighting with each other, whether to do an emergency tracheotomy on me to get back in a breathing tube, but the pulmonologists kept arguing with the emergency trauma surgeons and going back and forth. And then after six hours of monitoring my blood gas, it was okay. So... Yeah. And from your perspective, what's going on in that week and a half, that, that period, um, in terms of like, not only the family, but maybe people outside, uh, like community support. We've talked to some people who they like a big community support, and that, that's going to help them through that period. Yeah. You know, I, I imagine that other parents in this kind of situation have this similar experience that once you enter the ICU room, 
you really forget the rest of the world. You you really just don't. I I obviously had left my job, everything, um, and you just don't even think about it. All you think about is what's going on in that room, and you stare at the monitor and the numbers, and you're looking for fever and blood pressure and all these things, and and um, that seems that starts to become all you care about. Um, my daughter and I basically moved in his room. I didn't give the hospital a choice. I just said, we're moving in. Um, and we slept in his room for the entire three and a half weeks. But, um, you know, we, we, um, I come from a large family and my, you know, family members started flying into town and I had a lot of support with that. Um, but and what helped was Matthew at the time of the crash was involved in two activities that uh, had lots and lots of support. Um, he was a lifeguard at the YMCA and he was an Eagle Scout in his Boy Scout troop. So we started to just be inundated with help and support and meals and um, things from his YMCA family and his Boy Scout family. And so they took care of basically our needs so that I could just focus on that monitor and Matthew. And in fact, uh, the Boy Scout troop organized a group of scouts to go do our yard while I was in the ICU. So I don't have to think about it. So we had a lot of support and that, that was great. Um, I think, but, but the paradox is you have all that support, but at the same time, you still feel so alone and devastated. There's all these people around you, helping you, supporting you, loving you, praying for you. And at the same time, your world still just feels so empty and alone because all you're doing is staring at this body in the bed and hope that you get another chance to hug them again, to have a meal with them, anything. And so it's it's being in the ICU is just the strangest experience because it's so out of the norm of your regular day, your brain is just thrown into chaos, trying to process everything that's going on and all the people that are around. So, so it was, yeah, I mean, obviously the most horrible time of my life and we had a lot of support, but it was just also so scary every single day, waiting for him to wake up, wondering if he'll wake up, will he have any brain function if he does wake up? I mean, it was just more questions than answers. Um, after the inpatient period, uh, what, what will happen next? So after I got out of Dell Children's, I, my mom and drove me back to North Austin. I could go to my house again. And it was at first weird coming back to North Austin. It felt like I was in a new place. Nothing looked the same. I was just so just in awe of everything especially with how fast north austin's growing too oh yeah that's true yeah (laughs) definitely (laughs) and so when i got back i i didn't enter high school again yet so the only thing i was doing was um pretty much just staying at home and going to outpatient therapy for like two hours a day so that's all i did for like a month month and a half and then i started going to homebound which is the homeschool program set up by the public school and so i did that for about a month and then after two and a half months of getting out of the hospital i re-entered in the high school and 
Yeah. <laughs> so I re-entered high school. There was a lot of adjustment, mainly because um, the, the school treated me completely differently. They acted like I was in a complete vegetative state. But because I didn't have that many physical injuries showing, they acted like I was fine. A hidden injury. Yeah, that was the hardest part. And some of the biggest, that was the biggest difficulty after leaving the hospital was that because I didn't have that many physical injuries, like my bones have already healed, I didn't have a cast, or I didn't have a sling or anything like that. Um, but I still, I mean, I couldn't walk without a handrail or a cane. I would just fall over. So I remember uh, we went to, my mom and I went to this comedy show in Austin and this dad and his son with a broken leg got mad at me because I was waiting at the elevator and he just starts screaming and cussing at one of the security guards. He's like, why the heck does that guy get to take the elevator? There's nothing wrong with him. And so I just felt so angry in that moment because it's hard for people to understand what they can't see. And yeah. Oh yeah, I can relate to that because, you know, I still have a little bit of a limp and, mm-hmm. you know, people on campus whatever will call me and be like, hey, is your leg okay? And I'm like, leg's fine. I can go into not a long conversation with you about my head injury, but, you know, so I just end up just brushing it off because I yeah. don't, yeah, we're all college kids, we don't have that much time, mm-hmm. <laughs> but... Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges for brain injury survivors is because it's not an injury you can see, but it has such strong effects, there can be a lot of judgment from other people. I remember when we would use his disabled parking pass when we were still going to appointments, but because he didn't have a cast or anything, people would look at us like, how dare you use a disabled parking space? And, you know, you just have to ignore it and just hope that people don't have to learn the hard way about this. But, I mean, a brain injury, I think it, people get a lot of judgment because you can't see the obvious signs. But you can't see it, but also, like, people don't understand it. Like, mm-hmm. before this brain injury, did y'all ever really know anyone with a brain injury or know about it before yours? I thought it was just for football players with concussions. You know, I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, I definitely knew about it, but I noticed it more after my brain injury. I would, I just became more like vigilant and knowledgeable about it. It's kind of like <laughs> this is a weird metaphor, but when you're you've you're looking at a certain car to buy, and then you just start noticing it more on the highway. Mm-hmm. There's not just a more of that type of car, but you start noticing it more. I think it's kind of like that. Where, like, there's always people with TBIs and, like, brain injuries, but you don't notice them at first until you start looking. Um, So what are some of the, you know, moving to present day, what are some of the things you're still dealing with or things that, you know, you're still trying to improve on? So some things I'm still trying to improve on. um, I've... Pretty much fully 
recovered in the physical department, but I still have some um, mental, I guess, can't think of the word. Memory, mental What's issues. Impediments. Deficiencies. So, yeah, deficiencies. Yeah. Okay. yeah, so I have short-term memory problems. I have attention problems. Like, I can't stay focused for long periods of time. It's an absolute chore for me, and it tires me out. That's why re-entering school was so difficult, because I w would be sitting in class and, like, paying attention to the lecture for, th like, 30 minutes, and then I get so exhausted, I feel like I'd have to take a nap while other students were just fine. And then... Also, uh, vision. So... I got severe double vision after my car accident. I'm still dealing with it partially because of the nature of it. There, it really can't get better through therapy or anything like that because it's a seven degree torsion mm -hmm. of the right eye. So it's a rotation and you can't fix that with therapy or anything like that. So it's weird. Like whenever I look down, half it's normal, half my vision is normal, half my vision is tilted. So everything just looks all jumbled. Yeah, I, I had the same thing too. Like if I look up, mm -hmm. like you're two people right now. Like it's not bad, but you, yeah. No, I understand. Mm -hmm. So have a little bit. Yeah, I know what you mean. But so what? Um. What? Uh. You going to college right now? Uh yeah so. Um, Next semester, I'm going to, after summer, I'm going to enter my sophomore year of college at ACC. So, yeah. And how was is, how is your first semester? Uh, my first semester, I did pretty well. A lot of procrastinating. <laughs> then also, um, also some problems with memory, just because I never used a planner in high school. Mm-hmm. Because I would just, you know, remember my homework. But then in college, I would just start forgetting it. So I would get to class and be completely dumbfounded when my professor is like, oh, you're supposed to complete this. And I'm like, really? So I had to start keeping a planner in my second semester of freshman year. Just because I had to remember more things and stay on track. Like, I mean, my calendar on my phone, I always jokes, runs my life. Because, like, literally, without my calendar, I have no clue what I'm doing. At all. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> and what have you been up to uh, recently, just in terms of maybe the brain injury community? or? Wow, that's actually a great question. You know, I, I think that it's common for humans to try to make sense out of a tragic experience by doing something good with it. Um, and since, um, since the accident, I finished my master's in counseling. And so I had actually started a support group for parents with, uh, children of any age, adult or young, um, who are either chronically ill or, or seriously injured. Um, and then, um, since I've spent the last 10 months going around the state of Texas, giving presentations on how people can be compassionate and empathetic for people in the workplace who are experiencing trauma, grief, or loss. Since I went back to work 
full-fledged PTSD after his accident and got to experience what that's like to try to be functioning with that as part of your life now. So now I go around the state and train people on how to how to engage with people who are suffering suffering from trauma, grief, or loss. So that's been, you know, I wouldn't say a blessing, but it's been a way that I've made sense out of the chaos is to try to help others engage in a positive way with people who've been through terrible experiences. Mm-hmm. So. And what do you hope to do in the future? Um, as I heal more and I get you know, more accustomed to just life with the TBI and I adjust to all my deficiencies. I hope to get more involved in the community because I feel like there's a lot of people. Because I remember um, extensively from my second hospital and inpatient rehab, a lot of the kids who had TBIs that were honestly worse off than me. It was just... And I wanted to help them, but I couldn't just because I was healing. And so I still want to help them. So that's something I want to do further in the future is get more involved with like Hope for Minds and then may do some volunteering at the hospital and the inpatient rehab center. Yeah. So um, what I try to end on or what we try to end on is like, what are some pieces of advice you all would give to either, you know, someone going through it or a family member going through this experience? Um, I would say probably one of the most important things for me, um, and something I've heard other people with TBIs tell me, I recently met a guy in Alaska where he had a TBI when he was 15, 40 years ago. And back then, they didn't really understand what TBIs were. They were just like, oh, you got a big bonk on your head, just brush it off, it's no big deal. But then all the doctors told them, like, well, you can't do anything. And the biggest piece of advice I took for him was just, it's good to listen to what the doctors say, but also ignore them when they, what, what they say you can't do. When they tell you it's going to be significantly harder to go through college or do other things just kind of ignore them work as hard as you can that's the biggest part of it great and uh what about from your perspective well i think i think that you know if i had the opportunity to give advice to others in this situation i would tell them that find a way to trust the process that the first few days, weeks, months after the injury are some of the darkest days of your life. And you think it's never going to get better and know how many times people tell you it's going to, you truly don't think it's ever going to get better and lean into those feelings, feel them. It is really scary, but try to find a way to know that miracles do happen and people do get better and especially the brain the brain is particularly good at relearning things it just takes a long time so what looks impossible say in may is not impossible say in august the brain is constantly relearning and it's just really hard to be patient with the process but if you can find a way to do that um and also give yourself lots of time to emotionally heal 
Um, everybody told me that it was just going to be one bad year and that after the first year, I would be fine. So when the first anniversary of his accident hit, I was really depressed when I found out I wasn't fine. And I think that I, I built myself up for what everybody kept saying was, oh, it's just one bad year. It's actually lots of bad years. And you just go with the process and each year does get a little bit better, but it takes longer to heal than you think, but you will heal. What I was told by one of my therapists was that you are no longer running a sprint. You're running a marathon now. That's a great way to say it. That's true. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, both of you all, for coming on. And uh, if you want to hear more, uh, follow, uh, subscribe on iTunes and check out the teamlukehoferminds.org website. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Team Luke Hope for Minds podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website, teamlukehoferminds.org, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. See you all next time.